I am joined this morning by Edmund Smith of Andover, who would like to talk about some competitions that don't involve balls. They involve brains, the Connecticut Middle School Science Bowl, the Connecticut BioBlitz, and other things. Edmund, good morning. Thanks for coming in today. And let's start off by what kind of got this thing started in the first place between the two of us had to do with the fact that when people go out there and shoot a basketball and make a hoop, the guy on the radio the next morning uses their name and talks about it. It's all over the newspapers and so forth. But when somebody wins the Connecticut Middle School Science Bowl, nobody knows about it. That bugs you, doesn't it? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Wayne. Uh, that does bug me. Um, a classic anecdote that I have with this one is the high school science bowl was going on to the Nationals down in Washington, D.C., and E.O. Smith had won the, uh, the Connecticut Science Bowl. And so they were flown down by Department of Energy, and they had a player there um, uh, that was incredible. The family doesn't want me to mention his name because they're, they're very humble and he was the number one science math student in the country, and nobody in the state knew about him, and even people in the local community didn't know about him that much. He had gold medaled at the Vietnam uh, chemical, Chemistry Olympiad, only American to do so, uh, and in the other Olympiads, he finished very highly, so that, judging on those criteria, he was an amazing kid, and he brought them against uh, Thomas Jefferson High School down in Virginia, has... Basically, you have to apply, you have to be top-rated academically, you're busting from an area of the population of Connecticut. Their team is almost uh, unbeatable, but I'll give his first name. Robert was able to keep the team in it. They beat Thomas Jefferson, came third in the nation, and when they came back to E.O. Smith High School, the, the team and the coach walked through the, the atrium there, and there was a giant banner for the hockey team, that had finished first in the state for the smallest division and had all the players' pictures. It must have been 15 feet long, plasticized banner, and there was nothing for the for the Science Bowl kids. And so it's, uh, you know, when we're down at Nationals at Science Bowl in Washington, D.C., that's when the NFL draft is going on. And the press never shows at the, at the Science Bowl Nationals. And... <clears throat> The nation is fixated on football. We're getting locked into this consciousness that sports is what <coughs> rules the airwaves and is what on people's minds. Now, what is your role with the Science Bowl? Um, my role is, right now I'm a coordinator. And I got started in this when I was at E.O. Smith. Um, Kevin McLaughlin was like this outstanding science teacher. And he was running the Science Bowl team there. And I... I had a bus driver's license then. So I drove the team to Brown where they competed. When Kevin left E.O. Smith and went to UConn Engineering, um, even though we only had, he didn't even have a master's degree, I don't believe, and he was not going to be able to make it as a teacher in Connecticut because you have to have your master's a certain amount of time. But he was so qualified that he was teaching the freshman coming in at, at, at uh, UConn. Um, he passed over the Science Bowl team to me. Uh, very shortly, like the next year, I left for another school. I went to East Hartford, and I was like, oh, I wonder if there's a middle school science bowl. And I looked that up, and there was, and I got a team together. And we went up to Vermont. There was no regional in Connecticut, um, and brought uh, the Glastonbury coach, got my cousin, who was a science uh, history teacher down in Norwich, to get a team together. And we drove up there, and my team won. So we were flown to Golden, Colorado, to compete in nationals, and... 
um, when I was getting in line there to get first registered, I said, how come Connecticut people have to drive all the way to Vermont? And they told me, well, we don't have a host site in Connecticut. So when I came back from the Nationals, um, I went just walked in unannounced to the Yukon Dean's Office uh, for uh, Liberal Arts and Sciences. And within five minutes, they said, we want it. And I'm like, what? You, you, <laughs> what in my pitch? We want anything to do with the Department of Energy, right? So then I went over to engineering the same day and made the pitch to their dean. And he said, we want, so they wanted the high school and the, and the uh, sports, uh, not sport leisure. That was my background. Um, the, the liberal arts colleges wanted the middle school. So then UConn, since 2006, has been doing both of them. But then two years ago, uh, Liberal Arts and Sciences dropped funding for the middle school science bowl. So I didn't want the, the, the teams to have to drive to Massachusetts, and only a few Connecticut teams could have gotten in anyway. So I asked National Science Bowl, can, we, can, we, can I take it on and do it at my middle school? And they agreed. And this year we're going to run it at Glastonbury Smith Middle. Explain to me how the Connecticut Middle School Science Bowl works. Is it a competition involving question and answers, maybe even a Jeopardy format? Are they building things? What do the students involved in this competition have to do to win? You're right. It is a Jeopardy-style uh, competition. There's four students on each school sitting down with buzzers in their hands. They get asked a toss-up question. You have five seconds to answer. If your team gets it correct, you get four points, and then your team and only your team gets read the bonus question. If you get that right and you have 20 seconds to talk amongst yourselves, uh, if you get that correct, you get 10 points. So it's very competitive. They used to have teams that would build uh, hydrogen fuel cell car race cars, small you know shoebox size and there was also trophies in that division but now they're the kids when they're down at dc doing nationals they'll do other projects but the main thing is the academic competition all right edmund full disclosure these are middle school kids taking part in this if i were to take part in this competition perhaps going against middle schoolers how would i do are these questions that a normally educated adult would be able to answer, but the kids are in a learning process, so this actually becomes a, a learning experience for them? Wayne, when I'm moderating sometimes on a nationals, I don't even know what I'm reading. And I'm a science teacher, and I've had years. Who writes the questions? Uh, they hire a company, or now they're getting alumni who like to show off their knowledge base. And these questions, the first round is, you know, I could handle probably three-fourths of the questions. Um, but when you start getting towards the, the latter rounds, I don't even know what, what I'm reading. I don't know how kids, the question starts with like like 10 words, and they're not even done asking the question, and a kid buzzes in with the, hit, with the answer. They are off the charts. This is another thing that bothers me, because I go to, when I'm doing the Nationals, or I'm up at UConn, or whatever, and seeing the level of intelligence and excitement with the kids, it's, very, it's, it's just like, uh, you know, a buzzer beater shot. Sometimes it comes down to that. And the whole audience is, like, tense. It's, you get the same thrill. You get the same cutting-edge, you know, moments. And the press doesn't show. People don't know what's going on. And I don't know if you've ever seen the Spelling Bee contest. I have, the National yeah. Spelling Bee. There's words there I've never heard before. And these, like, 12-year-old kids can spell it like, they were born with it. That's pretty much the only academic competition that people get get to see. But there's so many more. There's the Envirothon. Um, there's the Oceans Bowl. There's uh, Math Counts. Uh, and all through the nation, we have the, the Geography Bee. They're thrilling competitions. But 
we America, I think, is shooting itself in the foot by not putting more energy into supports for the academic competitions. How do you prepare these middle school students for the Science Bowl? Is this just based on things they learn in their classroom curriculum, or are there actual sessions where you prepare them for this competition? It all depends on the, on the school, the coach. It's, it's usually a single teacher at a school that runs with this. Um, the teams that are very competitive or that win, um, they'll have a coach that, that meets one, at least once, sometimes twice a week, and runs practices after school. Um, and there's tens of thousands of questions online that, that coaches can access. Now, there's other schools that um, they don't have kids or they don't have advanced placement coursework or they don't have, uh, like, advanced math coursework, and those schools don't, don't participate. It would be, it's an embarrassment, and I think that teachers would not want to bring their team in and have them get shut out. You know, so that happens also. But it all depends how much the coach puts in. It depends on does the school have advanced courses that kids learn, learn this extra level stuff. Um, so it's like when I go to schools to recruit a school that's not participating, um, I'm a used car salesman. They don't even let me in the door usually. And when I do get in the door, the administrator will send me over to the science department chair. And I might get to talk to them, and they might say, oh, okay, well, you know, we'll look into this, but I rarely get a hit. Well, maybe I'm part of the problem here. From what we first talked about this morning, about the coverage that athletic teams get that academic teams do not. A couple of minutes ago, I just did a whole report on the UConn game with audio from dan hurley and from cam spencer and we donated we, we we actually came up with three hours of programming last night to carry that game on the radio three more hours tonight to carry the yukon women's game from creighton time that's not given to these academic competitions same thing in the newspaper they got tons of space for all the sporting events from football and the nfl to college bowl games to what UConn and other schools are doing that they're not giving to the Connecticut Middle School Science Bowl. Well, as I told you as we set this interview up, part of the reason for that is because these organizations have finely tuned public relations outlets that get the word out. UConn has it. Eastern Connecticut State University has it. My good friend Bob Malta runs it up there, and when we do scores on their games here... That information comes from him. Does the Connecticut Middle School Science Bowl and some other things we'll talk about today need something like that? Because these people are just doing their job to get the word out and people want to know about it. I'm guessing that if we got the word out about some of these academic competitions, people would like to know. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, the state of Connecticut, we have the CIAC. And I think they're a multi-million dollar uh, operation. And they organize playoffs. They have the rules and regulations. They they uh, certify referees and umpires, et cetera, et cetera. And then the every every town has a, a, a AD, and sometimes each school has its own AD getting paid. Athletic and, director. Yep. And then you yep. And then you've got the uh, the teacher coaches getting stipends, and uh, you've got the boards of education that will provide fields buildings, equipment, uniforms, busing for multiple games, uh, meals sometimes, trophies, pictures taken. At the, you, you start to add all of that up, and you compare to what happens with the advisor for the science bowl team in a school. Often they don't get a stipend. 
sometimes they do get a stipend. And they might get funding for one bus trip to the competition. So you look at the level of support. So why would a teacher want to jump on and take on an academic club when there you can jump into the baseball or basketball or lacrosse or hockey, whatever, and get much more recognition, get paid, have lots of supports, not have to go begging. So yeah, it's a it's a really big issue for supports. Well, throwing this right back in your lap, good naturedly, tongue in cheek, with you running the Connecticut Middle School Science Bowl, your involvement in it, and an EO Smith kid does extremely well in it. Couldn't it be incumbent upon you or people who were in the same positions that you are to get the word out? Let us know that a local kid just won a national championship or a state championship. And do you do that with the newspapers and do they run it when you send it to them? That's, that's, yes. If I was that really dedicated teacher coach, and by the way, I'm a full time teacher and I've got papers to grade and I got all this other stuff to do. And I don't have that athletic director at my school that does it for all of the coaches, sports coaches, right? So they've already, they've already got built in that system for communication. The AD has already regularly makes contact with media. So they've got everything in place, the phone numbers, their name is known. And now you've got the teacher that's already flat out that's expected to do, again, one of those more above and beyond what the athletic coaches have to do but yes they they could do a better job i would say write a release get a mailing list email works fine not hard to find my email address on our website and just send out one group email to all the media sources and let the chips fall where they may and see who wants to carry it i can also uh, give us i've never talked about this on the air but people might sometimes notice when i'm giving high school scores here I will sometimes use some of our local schools, not others. Why is that? Because the coach of that school that I use sends me the score and hopefully some high scores and the like, and the ones I don't use don't send it to me. I can't go looking around for all the local high school scores every morning. There's only so many minutes in the day, but when you give me the score, I will use it. And I'm thinking that might be the same thing here with the Connecticut Middle School Science Bowl, that at least if you offer it, at least some people will carry it, even though maybe not all of them do, and you get more coverage than you're getting already. Uh, yeah, I agree with that, but I'll let you know also, because uh, for nationals, I drive down. Normally, they fly all of the coordinators, but I drive down because I like to be able to glean stuff that's left over at the end of the competition and bring it back. A bunch of freebies. I always contact the New York Times. Every writer I've ever read that talks about academics and schools and loss, America's loss of standing academically compared to other countries and that kind of thing, I contact those reporters, and I have permission from National Science Bowl to bring a reporter from the New York Times to room with me. I get, I get a room in the hotel with two beds, right? They can room with me. They, they have never even gotten back to me with multiple communications. I also used to get a hold of the Hartford Current, crickets. I did not get response. So there is also built in this, America has a little bit of an anti-intellectualism. And because almost nobody has seen these academic competitions, they don't have it in their mind what it's like and that it's worthy of coverage. So I really think, again, it's like this used car salesman showing up at the door, like, what are you doing here? You know, so the pitch, it's almost like it's got to be organized by like a committee and, and people start to buy in.
What about biodiversity? What about the bio blitz? We've got a gentleman here from Andover who has been teaching at Two Rivers Magnet Middle School for the last 21 years, Edmund Smith of Andover. We had a good discussion just now about the Connecticut Middle School Science Bowl. I had shows here, many shows, about the Connecticut Bio Blitz, which I thought was a fabulous program. And then it kind of went away for a while. What's the status right now of the Bio Blitz in Connecticut? Uh, it's gone away for quite a while. What happened back in uh, 2005, I convinced Dr. David Wagner at UConn and um, Ellen, uh, a couple of other people like the Connecticut Museum of Natural History uh, and EEB to include our school in the BioBliss. In the past, they'd always pitched tents. If it was raining, everybody, there, you know, they're having wine passed around. People are singing to scientists at night. Um, but I said, how about holding it in school? We got showers. We got bathrooms. The weather would not, you know, ruin it. And we could then also include a, a camp, a junior scientist camp, where I could select 20 students that would then bio-blitz alongside the scientists. And it worked fantastic. So Dr. Wagner was sold on that. And then following years when we did other bio-blitzes, I always was the coordinator for the junior scientist camp. And we, we grew some new scientists. There's kids that, that came through that that are now getting their you know, PhDs and, and uh, basically running with biodiversity you know, backgrounds and that kind of a thing. Well, UConn, uh, in 2016, we held it at my school again, and we set the world record. And it was pretty, pretty stunning. There was over 170. Didn't they read about that in the New York Times? Probably. <laughs> yeah, well, that was UConn. That was not low-level middle school. It's a world record. Yeah, it's true. Um, but uh, so he set the world record. And then UConn ran another one in 2017, but then they stopped. And so around 2022, I'm like itching. And I'm trying to get Dr. Wagner to you know run another one. And he's he's working on this this huge home on uh, the western caterpillars and he is dedicated into getting that book done so i was like ed i just can't do it this time i said well i'm going to do it and he goes and i said we're going to break your record and i'm going to hold it down in groton going to get the project o boat we're going to include marine ecosystems along with the inland systems and and he said well good luck with that because you got to get a lot of scientists that know these things and know how to identify them and he was right i struck out um, we had we had some really talented people come, but I didn't have 170 scientists, and we did pretty well. But and I also lost a lot of money on that. I figured I was going to have people jump on board Pfizer Pharmaceutical that they're right there in Groton. Maybe they're going to support it. So um, I kind of like jumped before before I look, and I got I got burned a bit. Uh, with the funding of that, but it was successful. We held it at the Catherine Kolnaski uh, Elementary School. They loved it. We had uh, the kids were you know just thrived on it, um, and that's it. The bio blitz has not been held again, so there's nobody that's picked it up from UConn like Dr. David Wagner did. All right, a couple thoughts on that. Number one, David Wagner was one of those people I had on back when bio blitz was going on. I know a lot about bio blitz. They often would move it around from place to place. I remember they had one somewhere around here, and they had one in Danbury. But let me back up the truck a little bit and have you explain exactly what bio blitz is. We just talked about it like everybody knows, but because it's not widely covered, people don't know what it is, but it's a fascinating way, especially to get the kids involved, but also to identify species that are out there in our everyday life. How does it work? A starter's pistol gets shot off at three, at 3 PM 
And then the scientists that have gathered, whether it's uh, 20 or 180 or whatever, uh, they head out. They've already checked maps. There's, a, there's an area that's been marked, and the last couple of bioblitzes, it was a five-mile radius circle around a centered point. And usually they try to pick an urban environment. They're trying to get people to realize that even in cities and what you would think is low biodiversity areas, there's a ton of stuff. They're really trying to get urban, urban kids engaged. Um, and then there's teams, like the, maybe the Moss professor has their grad students and they've already checked maps let's try this area they might have even scouted areas out beforehand and now they have 24 hours and most of these scientists do not sleep for 24 hours they are they are active they are driving around you know they're bringing stuff back to bioblitz central and it, and when we had that at our school we have a great hall and you, you have these 150 170 scientists at 2 a.m in the morning the, it's, a, it's like starry night outside, and there's a hundred microscopes with lights, and there's people coming in, the mushroom people have this colorful array. It's just amazing. And it's another, you know, really, national television should cover something like this. I know National Geographic got involved in one of them, but, um, and they made a short movie, but people don't tend to look for that sort of stuff. Is it always done in the warmer months, or would you have it occasionally in a colder month, maybe not January, February, but the point is, do we have the same species that are discoverable in the summer that we do in the winter? Yeah, usually it's held in, in uh, late May, uh, early June, something like that. There's uh, Colleges have gotten out, so professors and grad students are able to come participate. Um, I don't, you could do them in the fall. Um, but you know, again, yes, th a lot of things are seasonal, some plants, some birds, birds migrate. So it would, it would matter. And, um, Dr. Wagner would know a better answer than I could give. So he's probably selected the, the highest biodiversity moments that, that it could be done. Do you have to protect the participants from things like ticks? They're uh, out, they're out there in the, in the, in the wild, they're out there in the woods and so are ticks. Yeah, when you and I were growing up, there was like one species of tick here. Now there's oh. like 13 or 14. They're all over the place. People are on their own. Now, when I have the kids, yeah, we when we go out, we do tick checks when we come back. Uh, you know, in, insect repellent on their skin for mosquitoes, that kind of thing. But the scientists are pretty much on their own. The, the police have been notified so that they know when they, they got this, this guy, you know, coming out of a car at 3 a.m. in the morning, going through a field. So the, the, the local police departments are notified. So, oh, that's a bioblitz, you know, scientist or something like that. But other than that, there's, there's no protective. What was learned through these bioblitzes about the status of species in Connecticut? Are we preserving them? Are they disappearing? Are they growing? You just talked about more ticks now than before. Yeah, you'd need, you'd need to do, um, you know, pre and post at the same locations at the same time of year with the same number of scientists with the, you know you'd have to replicate uh, a, re a repeat of what was done prior and i don't think bioblitzes have done that bioblitzes do um there are historical records connecticut botanical society has been taking walks through connecticut for 100 years and they have records so when a bioblitz is held a species might have disappeared um, or a new tick species found we did find a, a a new species of mite that had never been discovered unknown to science in one of the bioblitzes so new things are found yep. and you went from involved in that to coordinating the junior scientist camp man i wish there was one of those when i was a kid what's the junior scientist camp 
Yeah, that's where that's where we uh, put together an application. And it, when we were holding it in my school, I would try to make it so at least 10 of my kids got selected because I know them and I know the ones that would be energized and engaged. And then we farm it out to other schools to give to their top environmental type kids. And they have to write an application. And then Dr. Wagner, I, and a couple other people read them and select who the, 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 the people are going to be. Um, then they show up. We, we sleep on, the, usually it's the library media floor and the kids have brought their pads and their sleeping bags. And we go until about 1 a.m. in the morning. But kids, you can't. <laughs> we wake up, at, we try to get up at 7 for a bird walk, but generally it's pretty rough getting some of those kids back up, even by 8.30. Then they, they get up, and they should have collected something that was most interesting to them, and they do a little research, and they present to the public. The public comes in at noon. And that's when the scientists are showcasing, you know, their their finds and all that. Did you have events like this when you were their age? No. Or are these things all new? Okay, so the answer is no. So what was it that got you into interest in this field in the first place? Um, I think it was uh, my childhood life was a little bit rough, and I kind of got adopted by the Connecticut Botanical Society. Um, I I would go walking through the woods a lot. I tried to learn the birds, the plants as best I could. And then when I came to the attention of uh, a naturalist at the Pequot Seapost Nature Center, um, he had me come in and become a volunteer for the Nature Center. Then I encountered members of the Botanical Society, and I got, in, even when I was a teenager, I was going out with these botanists. And from that moment on, I was pretty much locked into natural resources and, and biodiversity. I mentioned retired teacher, Two Rivers Magnet School, Magnet Middle School, for 21 years. What was your focus there? What were you teaching the kids in, the, in that school? I left teaching ecology at E.O. Smith High School specifically to go to this school. They recruited me because they were an environmental school. And the environmental science teacher could actually set the schedule. If I want one class the whole day, the other, the other you know, teachers had to, to bend. Um, but very quickly, they, they tossed out this, this environmental focus, and I just became a normal science teacher. But I was doing still environmental studies. They've now changed the name. Uh, their enrollment is down, and not because we weren't doing a good job. They've changed it now to the, the Connecticut Academy of Computer Science and Engineering, thinking that that's going to draw in uh, more students for, for that, you know, does that have an acronym, C-A-S-E or something uh, like that? Uh, let's see, computer science. It does, but I can't remember yeah. what it is because I left. <laughs> well, see, here's where, the, here's where my sports influence comes in. And I think I've seen that abbreviation. There's so many school names yeah. now that weren't around 50 years ago, and a lot of them have acronyms. And I'm thinking that's probably one that I've read when I'm given scores someplace. I never knew what it was or where it is, and now i got a guy here that was teaching there for 21 years. I think it's CompSci, and it's a correct school, correct? Crick is a very large district. Crick is one of those, yeah. Yeah, yeah they run several schools. <laughs> I read that. I, what does that stand for? But I've, I've seen Crick now. It's right there in downtown Hartford, I think. What are biodiversity camps, and are they similar to the BioBlitz? Yeah, well, I'm, uh, once again, I was riding the coattails of Dr. David Wagner. He's a force. He really is. He's an amazing guy. Um, and he was like, hey, Ed, let's, uh, let's do a camp at your school. I'm like, yeah, I'd love to do that. And so, uh, again, we'd select kids from my school and also surrounding towns. And he would bring grad students in. 
Um, he would take us to his lab at, at up at Yukon Stores, um, and we would we he'd bring insect nets, uh, equipment. I was the one that coordinated, you know, with the parents and the all the forums that kind of thing. But Dr. Wagner was the force that got funding from the Garmony Foundation, and we would get buses to take the the kids, twenty kids, to different locations to jump out of the bus, capture everything, and at the end of the week they would have to have researched a one of their finds. And the parents come in, and we do the presentation. It's and the kids. It's it's like some of them are are practically doing college level presentations, even though they're like a middle school kid. Uh, you know, some of the high school kids are, were incredible, and some of the kids were, well, you know, they didn't have the energy. But that was uh, again riding Dr. Wagner's coattails. How does someone get into a biodiversity camp now? There is none because well, I'm not at the school anymore. And my principal told me also, this is the last year we're going to do it because now we're changing over to computer science. And so um, there's no there's no home for it anymore. What is the Thomas Paine National Historical Association? Uh, Thomas Paine is, 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 it's a rebirth going on right now. That's the, Mr. Common Sense, right? Thomas Common Paine? Common Sense, yeah. Age of Reason, Rights of Man. Um, and he is, uh, there's a collected works of Thomas Paine that are uh, being written right now. And when it gets published, it's going to double the amount of known uh, writings of Thomas Paine. Um, they have discovered that he actually had a hand in the Declaration of Independence, the copy of the Connecticut, um, I'm trying to remember the Connecticut, uh, Connecticut uh, colonial, um, Roger Sherman. On Roger Sherman's copy of the Declaration, they found a little note that says uh, 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 permission to copy granted by TP. And the only TP that was known to Jefferson and Sherman, all of them, was Thomas Paine. There had already been conjectures that Thomas Paine had been part of that. He also was uh, anti-slavery, and they've discovered some stuff that he had done that he wrote letters pretending to be a, a slave to Thomas Jefferson trying to give the logic to Jefferson from a slave's view why slavery is so wrong. And um, he was pro-woman. He was pro-Native American. There is no founding father that that is so vital for today's discourse as Thomas Paine. So I joined the, the, the society. It's been maintained pretty much by the president. Um, uh, Thomas Edison was the one that built this structure. Uh, it used to be a big deal down in, down in New Rochelle, uh, New York. Now they're kind of scrambling a bit, and they're trying to get the, name, you know, the word out about Thomas Paine. People need to start looking into Thomas Paine. We talked a lot earlier this morning about the Connecticut Middle School Science Bowl and, among other things, the lack of publicity, even though some local students have done very well in it. You vacationed in Jamaica for a week last year, and there was national television showcasing quiz bowl competitions. What did you learn from that? I learned, like, why don't we have that? in the United States. Uh, first off, the, the Jamaican kids were really good, um, but they weren't anywhere near close to what American students would be able to, to achieve. And that's not knocking Jamaica. Jamaica has like a very poor economy. Um, and I'm sure they have a tough time, you know, getting higher level courses, coursework and stuff like that. But and higher nation, level educators too. Yeah. Um, not, I wish we had a lot of Jamaican people running our, our schools in america they don't they ex have high re expectations they don't allow for disruptions and in american schools we often permit disruptions to take away from the, the the benefit of the many but anyway yeah that was one of the ones where wow 
Jamaica can do it, why can't we at least have, like ESPN, I had contacted ESPN a while ago, and hey, how about you guys cover some of the academic competitions, it kind of like fits within your within your realm, and it would be really exciting, but again, crickets, never heard back. Now, this is called Quiz Bowl, and specifically, what do they quiz them on? Are they wide range of topics from international affairs to science, or what are they asking these children? Yeah, you mentioned Quiz Bowl. Quiz Bowl is a different animal. Um, and Quiz Bowl, you can get questioned in anything. Sports, literature, art, music, science, math, uh, you know, uh, uh, international, American history, whatever. Uh, but Science Bowl, the questions are about three or four science questions for each math question. And you'll have earth science, you'll have chemistry, physics, general science. So the questions stay within that realm for Science Bowl. Um, yeah, you got Oceans Bowl, and Project Oceanology was the host site for that, uh, and that's a, a national competition, too, um, and I've never participated in that. I would love to learn more about that one. Uh, math Counts is obviously math uh, questions, competing individually and by team. Um, so, yeah, they all have their own particulars, but there's something for everybody. Every kid could find an academic competition. As a guy, obviously, with an interest in science in particular, what advice would you have for students at the middle school, the high school level, who want to pursue that as an academic direction? What, what, what's a good school for learning that stuff? And what would you suggest they focus on in their middle and high school years? Well, I would say have parents that are willing to move. <laughs> Frankly, um, I see that happening right now with some of the Science Bowl middle school kids. They're, they're feeling uh, like we're not covering enough material here in middle school. Um, and so the parents actually, the aunties and the uncles talk amongst themselves, and they will actually share houses. For instance, I've had some of my students uh, move to South Windsor, which has higher level courses and higher, higher expectations academically. And the people that moved out of that south windsor school will maybe move to farmington they share houses okay it's often it's often kids with indian or asian asian parents that will actually choose the town with the best schools for their kids to maximize their education that's actually what's happening that's about uh, the best i can say i don't know how the the windham uh, environmental school is um, I know when the Connecticut River Academy was being formed by Project Learn at Goodwin College, uh, they wanted to lock in environmental studies, and CREC was in the discussion at that point, but CREC would not allow them to lock in environmental studies. So they went with Project Learn, which chapped CREC's, you know, proverbial whatever, because Learn is a, another resc that serves more, more southern down in New Haven areas. One last thing. Ed, you're from Andover now, and one of my favorite places on the planet is the Hop River Trail in Andover. You being a science guy, you being a nature guy, do you get a chance to uh, take advantage of it, enjoy the Hop River Trail that runs some of the prettiest parts of that trailer in Andover? Yeah, I get out. I get out with my bike. Uh, haven't been riding for a while. Had some operations, but I'll be get back to this spring and riding into you know Willie Brew. Uh, or, or, you know, riding out to, to Vernon, uh, you know, tap and keg, whatever. There's <laughs> not, of course, you don't drink too much. You drink one beer, and it's a it's a beautiful trail. It's, a, it's Yeah. And this is really a fun discussion this morning. I appreciate you sharing your thoughts today. Thanks for joining me today. Ed Smith from Andover, our guest on WILI.